You are listening to Paths, a program by LGBT Tech. Paths works to create visibility of LGBTQ plus STEAM professionals and their experiences in order to build space for future generations of community members to pursue their passions in STEAM. My name is Kristen Kelly. This episode of Paths is brought to you by LGBT Tech. Today we are joined by Don Wages, who is a product manager at Microsoft. So thank you so much for taking the time to be with me here today. I'm so excited to have you um, here in this interview and participating in the PATHS program. Um, So if we could just start with uh, an introduction, if you could just tell us your name, um, please include your pronouns and also your profession. Awesome. My name is Dawn Wages, uh, she, her pronouns, and I am a senior app developer at Wharton um, at the University of Pennsylvania. I am proudly a Black lesbian. I specifically use the term lesbian um, because that's the community that I feel really, really comfortable with. I think there's an ethos around being a lesbian and a proud Black lesbian um, that has like a, a really rich and beautiful history. Within my community, I, I we call each other dykes. I am a Black dyke. I love that. Um, I, um, I think when I'm given the opportunity to expand my part in the, the alphabet community, um, I also consider myself as pansexual. I am also very queer, which I also think is a, a political term as well. Um, so queer women of color um, is also a, a, a term that I go by as well. I didn't come out until my freshman year of college, um, but I always always knew that I was queer or liked women to some degree. So like you remember back in like the early 2000s, every song we're, we're calling girls freaks. And there was also um, Katy Perry's I Kissed a Girl and I Liked It. So there's this objectification of women who liked women that was just dismissed as well. And it was just, oh, you're, you're a freak. You, you just like, I don't like whatever that could mean. Um, so I thought it was just kind of this like shameful part that you don't want to talk about. I'm not going to just kiss a girl at a party just to kiss a girl at a party. So I don't think I actually came to the realization that this was part of my community uh, until I was in college and I was trying on the term bisexual for a while. Um, and I think that I had a little bit of a side note, but I think I had a little bit of internalized biphobia. So that that term didn't feel comfortable. It was an extension of this, um, am I a freak conversation? Am I just like, you know, promiscuous girl um, kind of thing. When I was challenged in the community by like, who am I and what am I? Um, I had a lot of black lesbian friends in college, this very small group, but they were tight knit. And being a, a black bisexual woman at that time, I felt like I was kind of kicked out of this queer thing um, and wasn't allowed to do the prides um, and, and didn't feel like my queer family that I had for the short of time when I had this girlfriend and then didn't have this girlfriend and then had this girlfriend again, um, wasn't like riding for me like I thought they were going to, uh, which was sad and frustrating. Um, I had another resurgence of, of learning about my queerness um, after me and the, the that girl in college broke up. And then I was single in a new city in Philadelphia. Um, and it's a very black and queer city. Um, and we have like a whole street called Gayborhood. Um, I know Chicago and a couple other major cities have that as well. But it was new to me. 
And so I got on Tinder and I got on OkCupid and I was young and gay and had a lot of fun. Um, And that was one of the first times that I felt like I could come into this term. I met, dated some people who were older or even more secure in their sexuality or have been out um, for as long as they've been dating. I like the practice of being queer and dating actively because you're introducing yourself to these people regularly. And you get to figure out the words that fit you um, and that make you feel good and that reflect who you are. Um, and you kind of come up with this pitch as you're dating on these profiles of who you are. And it kind of entrenches in your brain like, yeah, that fits. Like, yeah, I think that's who I am. Yeah, I like that. Um, so I, I think being the uh, a black lesbian and being a queer woman of color really came into form Um, around that time period in my early 20s. If you were to explain your work to somebody who had never heard of it before, um, how would you explain your job? How would you explain your day-to-day and just the the type of work that you do? Perfect, yeah. So we work with uh, research and faculty um, at the Wharton School. Um, My job is to facilitate a lot of their app development needs. Um, Usually there are two lanes in which I can provide value for the research and faculty. First would be uh, would be the building the web application, usually web, sometimes mobile, the application at which they're collecting the data. And then the second um, is extracting data, manipulating data, storing data. Um, A lot of those needs as well will help them with those. And then we hand off that data for them to be able to do their work and do the research, do the analysis and write the papers. And then sometimes they'll come back to us when they need another revision um, or another round of testing for for their research. And um, hopefully we get them to publish. Do you remember where your interest in tech started? Do you remember like how you found your way into tech and what that journey kind of looked like for you? Yeah. So I guess it could have started in high school. I was on MySpace, very heavy. Um, That is a through line in my queer journey as well. But I think I need to like unpack that one a little bit more. But MySpace and Zanga were definitely part of my like, way to live and be myself on online. Um, and that was teenager time. Um, and learned some HTML and CSS and then wanted to move forward with web development, mostly inside um, some type of like entrepreneurial route. Um, but felt like it wasn't gonna work. I just didn't think I was smart enough. I, I just, yeah, I, I wasn't sure if I was smart enough for it. So then I went to business school, did my four years at uh, UNC, and then um, tried my hat at finance. Was not good at finance. I'm not, I'm, I couldn't, I didn't do that. Um, but we'll say I decided to go somewhere else. Um, and then I uh, went to some analyst positions and started uh, as a SQL analyst. Um and that was my first time like coding again since MySpace in high school. And I was, this is my early 20s. Um, and after that, um, I was like, okay, well, I want a job that's going to challenge me intellectually. I had this kind of knockdown from not actually being the right fit for finance. Um, and I wanted an opportunity to 
uh, it was it was kind of to stroke my ego. I, I wanted to be smart at work um, and figure out what that meant. So I got in touch with the Philly Python Users Group um, and started doing meetups actively with them, got in touch with the Django community, the Python web framework, um, when they were in uh, Philadelphia that year, 2016. And it was just kind of history from there. I kept working kept working, couldn't get a job in the field, uh, did some other things. But it was the moment that I did Django Girls uh, at DjangoCon 2016 in Philadelphia that I really felt like, hey, I can do this. I ended a workshop with a website. I can I can code in Python and make something work. Um, and so that, yeah, that was that was really enlightening, exciting experience. After finding these spaces um, and kind of moving into the tech world, can you talk a little bit more about your experience as a member of the LGBTQ plus community, um, like in the workplace and just kind of in these, you know, whether that be at conferences or um, in coding boot camps or whatever that looks like for you? Can you talk about your experience just a little bit more recently and currently? Yeah. So in North Carolina, um, I was continuing my tech journey. I'm teaching myself Python in the background um, and I'm a project manager for an e-commerce organization. Um, and my team was all white and all straight as far as I know. Um, and there was not a culture of, and I was black lesbian, very out. I felt my queerness in particular was um, an oddity um, when I was in North Carolina, especially working. Um, then coming to Philadelphia, um, much larger queer community. Um, I feel incredibly comfortable at work um, talking about um, being a lesbian and, and dating. I talked to my boss about ring shopping the other day it, and, and talking about who's going to get pregnant first the other day. Um, so it, it feels... Um, a lot more natural and comfortable and, and as it should be, you know, without a lot of, without restrictions. And my, my first inclination, I'm nearing 30. Um, so my first inclination uh, still is to kind of hold back and like pause. Um, but as soon as I notice myself pausing, I kind of push through and keep talking. And how has that affected you in general um, in your life recently, having those spaces to kind of be out and proud in your workplace? Yeah, totally. It gives you something like much less to worry about. So um, comparing directly the two roles, um, because I did go in and out of consulting, freelance consulting, um, which was its own beast as well, um, because you are reintroducing yourself to people. So uh, so I'll segment them. So uh, working as a project manager um, in that particular organization, um, I think was the most uh, constricted I felt with being myself at work. Um, and it felt like there were these unnecessary um, levels of confrontation that I would worry my mind about. I, I'm a nice person. I'm not confrontational. I am not combative. Why do these people interpret, interpret me as this combative type person? I, it would, truly gave me this weird... Um, weird level of kind of like self-reflection. I was, um, after that I consulted for a while. It was beneficial because I got to choose who I worked with. Um, I was very, um, forthright with who I am. Um, and so 
it would weed out odd conversations very early because you wouldn't be in this um, intro call with me if you didn't realize that I was a black queer woman. So it's already done. Let's keep moving, right? Afterwards, now I think I am in the most safe space that I've ever been in. I'm very, very proud of uh, the community that exists in the queer community that exists at Wharton. It, I, I just like I realized that I'm I'm focusing on work. Um, I'm not worried about these work relationships. I'm smiling more. It um, seems a little hokey, but very much a, a safer, warmer environment that I'm I'm able to to not stress um, as much just being myself and I take that for granted sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. I know you've done some, some work around like anti-racist coding and kind of being really intentional about that in that field. Could you talk a little bit about that work that you do and maybe just like kind of explain um, the work that you do in that area and like the, how you came to doing that work and just kind of, yeah, just if you could talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, so I am part of a group. I founded an organization called At The Root. Um, We were founded in 2020. um, And uh, we are building the first anti-racist ethical license. Um, It is very much in the same vein as the Hippocratic license that was founded in 2018 by Coraline Imke. Um, And we are in partnership with the Organization for Ethical Source with Coraline Imke. We are separate organizations, um, but we are... um, incredibly proud to be partnered with um, Organization for Ethical Source. And so for those who are not familiar with what an ethical source license may mean, I can give you a brief rundown. So in 2018, um, there was a, um, it may have been more of a social media kerfuffle, it could have permeated um, other channels, but a lot of devs felt concerned with their uh, the way that their open source intellectual property was being used um, because of an open relationship that GitHub had with ICE um, and ICE detention centers. Um, so from that, Coraline Imke um, created the uh, concept of the ethical source license. Um, it's called the Hippocratic license with the motto, um, in the most simplest terms, to do no harm. And it serves the same purpose as an open source license. It lives at the root of your folder, um, of your directory, um, and dictates what the end use of this piece of code can do um, in the context of what I believe is capitalism. It is more financial incentives um, along with um whether or not you are able to sell this piece of software and build something else and build and ha- generate revenue from it, right? Um, and by flipping that and recognizing that there is still the same tool that has been arguably effective, um, but it is also, it's just a, a trodden path and the default path for being able to monitor those types of things and control the use of encode. It is a, a an agreement that you have to um, engage with in order to participate, use that code. Um, now we have the opportunity to do that with ethics. Originally, we were using the capital O, capital S, open source with open source licenses. Um, there's some still some questions on that, whether or not we can call it the capital O, capital S, open source with these ethical source licenses in them. Um, but we're up for the challenge of trying to figure that out. Um, and uh, we have an awesome 
a team with the Corporate Accountability Lab. Um, have They have lawyers that are partnering with the Organization for Ethical Source um, to be able to figure that question out. Yeah, I think that work is so incredible um, and just like really exciting. Could you talk just a little bit more about why that's important to have people working on projects like this and why you you and everyone you're collaborating with felt like this was an important project specifically? Totally. Um, so to add to that previous point, um, mm-hmm. At The Root will be coming out with our first version of the anti-racist license on June 10th of 2022. Um, and we're really excited about that. We're working on that now. Um, and we've all um, and you, we should see our just really bright and, and collaborative Slack conversations. Um, we're all very much invested in the future of open source and the tech community at large, um, at least with the way that uh, the community is shaped right now, technology is shaped right now. You have one, maybe two degrees of separation from open source software from anything you touch. Mm-hmm. Um and, and I think that's without exaggeration. Um, so open source is really an engine that drives a lot of technology. Um, also, you are giving of yourself this, uh, this IP that can be used to build anything later. Um, and the way that I sell um, this vision is that we are giving software engineers or, or tech professionals um, the the power to determine what world their intellectual property is building. And I'm incredibly proud um, of that vision um, and that there are more people um, swarming in under that banner and doing work in other ways. And I think that uh, the ethical license is only the start of it. at the root is um, also currently working on, um, and we don't have a date for our first release, um, but currently working on um, a software developer kit, an anti-racist software developer kit, um, and so under which we are currently working on, and the first release will be in Python um, because that's my bread and butter. Um, we are currently working on um, adapting and bringing in um, uh, APIs that help facilitate making more inclusive code. Because anti-racist work is intersectional, um, we are not being, um, we do not have any type of criteria which we were going to accept um, uh, tools and and code built for this um, SDK. Um, The larger, the better, the more inclusive, the better. Um, We are working on an approach that is similar to the Python uh, PEP system, um, where we we create proposals um, that will meet a need and then also match them up to tools that will uh, that will address a need. And if we find a tool without having a proposal, then we will write the proposal to match that tool that we think will be within it. And we also have a very flat org structure. Um, so I've been doing some reading on anarchist structure and Turtle Island and things like that. And so we have a expressed intention of keeping the organization incredibly flat, making sure everyone's opinion matters um, and figuring out what a safe, um, active membership community is um, and how we go about doing that um, uh, while uh, while underscore the the component of keeping people safe. Do you feel like there are barriers for for LGBTQ plus individuals in entering the tech world? And what do those barriers look like? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think we come across them in ways that are feel kind of obvious or maybe even too obvious to say. Uh, the hiring practices, I think, are incredibly um, lean towards um, cis and heteronormative people, um, specifically gender. Um, so I'm a cis person. I think that I have an incredible amount of privilege, truly just even applying in the first step for a job and checking a box and having my gender being represented. And I can't imagine the continual letdown in an active job search to have each one, one by one, not represent you in the very first step. We have states that are allowing allowing for ex-gender on passports, why are these uh, tech companies not up to it? Um, so um, I think there's a lot of work that can be done in, in that area. As for um, sexual orientation and other forms of queerness, whether um, it po- political or in, um, um, in the way that we are and we live, um, I think we culture fit is a thing that is said a lot. And what does that mean? Um, I I think it's important to talk about culture, and it can mean a uh, mean a good thing that welcomes me. Um, but in many times, it's a this ambiguous tool to just like cut people out that don't um, that don't ascribe to the cis white heteronormative life. Us being radically different um, uh, is makes navigating in the the tech space and the um and the interviewing space in particular um tough but i do find that open source um has a lot of warm love for queer people um i think it comes from as i mentioned this radical approach um to life um and so we have um people who are very much in, invested in um the advancement of, of technology rather than the money that it's going to be able to, or how technology is going to fit into capitalism. And that brings in all sorts of really rad, anarchist, um, anti-fascist, uh, um, and, and aggressive, aggressively positive and, and, and creative people to try to solve the world's problems with technology. What advice would you give to LGBTQ plus individuals who are interested in entering STEAM fields, but but might not know how or might not know if there's space for them there? Yeah, there is space. There's more than enough space. Come, come. We are we need you here Um, and an incredibly authentic and in realistic, like tangible way. We need you here. Um, There are more than enough projects that are working and touching the lives of queer people that are not queer, um, building them. And you have a a very um, valuable, um, insightful perspective to be able to bring to the table to build tools um, that will be used by yourself and your peers. If you have an idea for a tool that needs to be built, there is space for you here. There are people who want to collaborate with you on working on it. There is a lifestyle available that allows for remote living, um, making comfortable living. It is not 
incredibly easy for us to get there, um, but it is definitely possible. Um, and it is a career path that you are able to jump levels of income um, far faster than you can in a lot of other fields. So um, there's plenty of work to do. There's plenty of things to be done um, and there's plenty of space for you. And I hope that I get to meet you one day. To learn more about the PATHS program and how to get involved, visit our website at www.lgbttech.org paths.